Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. Let me introduce you to Sid Maestri of API Matic. We had a really question-generating interview. We talked about API governance. We talked about maybe that the three C's of developer relations need a fourth C, which is that you have to be cross-functional. And we got deep into the weeds on whether documentation should be generated from annotations or whether documentation should be generated from the specification. Lots of good questions for the practice of developer relations. And I think we're only, as a community, starting to feel our way into the answers. All right, let's talk to Sid. Sid, welcome to the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. It is great to have you here today. And we're going to talk about APIs and SDKs and making them do what you want, building them, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but you, could you start by telling us who you work for, what they do, and let's talk about building APIs. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Richard. And yeah, so my name's Sid Maestri. I'm the VP of Developer Relations at a startup called API-Matic. We've actually been around for quite a while, I think at least eight years, and we were founded out of New Zealand. And I met the, the co-founder many years ago, and I've been working with open API specifications and generating SDKs at my previous companies. And I joined API-Matic about six months ago so that I could help them raise awareness about how you can automate building some of your developer experience, specifically uh, SDKs, a developer portal that goes along with it that has SDK-specific documentation, uh, runnable idiomatic code samples, and I can I can explain what idi what we mean by idiomatic if you're not familiar with that term. And uh, actually, the portal has an uh, what we call an API playground, which is an interactive API explorer. So you can actually allow your developers in your community to come to your docs and drop in an API key and start making API calls directly from your documentation, which um, is actually pretty interesting way to allow that evaluation of your APIs before they've ever downloaded a sample app or an SDK. They can kind of experience and modify the payloads and see what kind of responses they get back. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, everything developer experience today with you. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Okay. So you guys kind of, you, you, it, it's basically an, an API and SDK in a box. Um, I come to you guys and you'll effectively generate all this stuff. Um, but the first question that comes to my mind is, where, where does it start? So I've built... Um, I've, I've built my startup, and it's got a website and a mobile app, and we're past the MVP stage, and I have a couple of good devs, and they've built a pretty robust system. We've, I don't know, we've, maybe we've just closed our Series A. Um, you know, we've, our, we've got our 20% month on month, um, and now we're dealing with enterprises, and they want to do integrations, and we don't have an API. 
but we still have a system that has a huge amount of technical debt. Um, so is that is that the place? Is that the sweet spot where you guys come in? That you help me if I'm the CDO of a company like that, you help me go from my tech debt laden system. Build an API around it, generate SDKs for everything from iOS to Rust, um, and have wonderful documentation. Just walk me through the process, right? I've got this problem. The CEO says, yeah. I want to integrate with Salesforce, and where's the API? Uh, where do I start? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually, I think, are a little bit further down the development chain. So I would say our customers tend to be a little further along in the process because, you know, when you're Series A, uh, you're going to need to build, you know, we don't build the API for you. I'll, I'll just, I just want to uh, make a, a clarification there. Okay. The company, yeah, the companies that come to us have an existing API. They might have some API documentation that they've handwritten, perhaps. Or they might have generated it from an API specification like Swagger or OpenAPI 3. And the developers are showing up and they're getting this laundry list of RESTful endpoints that they can interact with. And they're saying, okay, what what other what else how else can you help me? Right. Uh, your first couple developers that come along, they're willing to write those. REST API calls from scratch, and they're willing to troll through your documentation to understand how to authenticate and what the error responses are and how to handle them. But as your community of developers grow and your objective is to onboard and accelerate that API integration, you know, shorten the time it takes to integrate, and you're getting a broader pool of developers of different skill sets who learn in many different ways. You you really need to think about what more can you do in your in your DX, and that's where I believe SDKs really are a competitive advantage. We've actually found a lot of companies in the fintech space because they are so focused on driving transactions, API calls, volume through their APIs they actually really appreciate the value add of you know SDKs combined with code samples that are runnable. You just copy, paste that code sample, and you can actually start building production-level code uh, with, the, with the code samples that you're getting. And that's really the, the, the sweet spot that I think we're, we're finding a lot of success in. Okay, okay, I get you. So... I've built my REST API or, or GraphQL or, or something else, perhaps. Do you guys have tooling that automates the analysis of that, that then generates things for me? Or is it more of a, like a service engagement? Yeah, so what we have, uh, so we're, we're purely REST-based right now. We have okay. had some customers ask us about GraphQL, but you know, that's a whole nother animal. And sure. so we're we're, <laughs> okay. we're we're really focused. Yeah, we're we're actually really focused on delivering high quality SDKs for your developers who are using TypeScript or JavaScript. It's kind of the same thing. Java, PHP, Python, Ruby, C sharp, and we actually have a our, our seventh uh, language Go uh, GoLang, which is being used by some initial customers. 
And I, we also are, are working on a Swift SDK. So we've, we've got eight languages we're, we're trying to cover there. And what, what will happen is when you initially come to us with your API spec, you'll probably log in through our portal. You'll go to a dashboard and you'll create your, you'll upload your API definition, generate your portal, generate those initial SDKs and, you know, download and kind of experience what the SDKs are like. When you go to production, we have a team that helps onboard our customers because there's actually quite a bit of tooling that you can take advantage of. We have the we have our own APIs basically. So if you want to build the creation of your SDKs and updating of your developer docs through your continuous integration CI/CD pipeline, you can trigger through GitHub Every time I make a change to my API spec, I now want it to go and call API Maddox APIs and generate a new portal and generate new SDKs and publish those to the package management systems. So it's immediately available for developers. So there's there's a whole tooling aspect that we can help automate as well. Okay. Okay. And I, I mean, in terms of the the people that are coming to you, we, we both know developer relations has now become, it's a kind of a critical thing for, for a lot of companies that, that have developers interfacing with them. Um, but have you seen things change, let's say, in the, in the last couple of years where uh, what you do and the things that you help companies execute on have become essential? Yeah, I think that, well, just uh, on my background, so I I started out, I'm, I'm self-taught developer. So a, li- a lot of folks, uh, I think, have have fallen this path where you fall in love with technology and you, you start learning. Back when I was doing it, it was a lot of books. And then, yes. uh, you know, more, now it's more online resources. Yeah, so I was... I was I was type I was retyping code samples from books uh, when yeah. I started out, and and I, I got a good decade under my belt building e-commerce systems and content management systems, all those sort of things. And then about twelve years ago, uh, I started running my own user groups and meetups because I really craved that connection with community which led to a recruiter from PayPal approaching me to to ask if I wanted to be a developer evangelist. And and I had seen developer evangelists speak at conferences and I was so impressed by them. I thought uh, I could never do that. I'm not that smart. Uh, I'm not that talented is what I thought to myself. So when this recruiter identified me for my community work, uh, I thought, wow, this is amazing. I'll give it a try. Uh, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to being a full-time engineer, I thought. And uh, you know, 12 years later, uh, I'm still doing it. And I feel like I'm still learning because the space continues to evolve. Um, when I started in 2011, it was a lot of travel, going to conferences and you know, mm-hmm. writing blog posts. You know, But uh, now it feels much more formalized as a profession like there's books that have been written there's conferences dedicated there's all these you know wonderful communities on slack and other places where we as professionals get together and we share you know what we are what we're what our challenges are 
what what work we're doing, how we might work together. And so there's there's definitely been, I feel, an evolution in the sense that we actually have our own community. Because I, when I started, you maybe had a coworker or two doing developer evangelism with you, but you, you didn't have this uh, robust community to get together with and learn from. I want to uh, focus on one thing you said, which I think is really important. Uh, this idea that the, the people you see doing conference talks are somehow bigger than you, right? Are somehow geniuses. Yeah. Um, but I feel the best conference talks, the best conference talks are the ones where people just tell a genuine story about actual experiences that they've had. And anybody can do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a level of humility and, and authenticity that if you combine that with your real life experiences, it's extremely powerful because people identify when you talk about your failures and not just your successes, uh, people really connect, I feel. At least I've connected with speakers in that way. And I think it's something I definitely try to bring to the table. Uh, maybe that's that background of being a self-taught developer that I'm I'm going to stay humble my entire career because I feel like... Uh, I I didn't have all that formal training, but I've learned a lot throughout the years, and I and I try to bring those successes and failures into the conversation to to help others learn from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm actually the same, right? I doubt either of us would. Well, I'm, I'll only speak for myself, but I, I doubt I would pass the uh, the Google interview or oh. algorithm questions. <laughs> yeah, okay, I actually think bye -bye. that's. That I think studying for those interviews is a full-time job uh, for a lot of engineers. Wow. So, uh, yeah, hats off to them for, for putting in the work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when you were you were in eBay uh, or PayPal, sorry, around the time that they there was a lot of change going on. I seem to remember they brought out a mobile API based on Node. Was that around your time, or was that a little bit? after you were there you know i think 2013 yep. sometime around then yeah that was right after my time at paypal when i joined i actually joined as a mobile developer evangelist because right. mobile payments and ios and mobile like shopping on your phone was such a new thing and they were they were acquiring businesses left and right there was one called red laser that was all about scanning QR codes, uh, which was revolutionary at the time. And could you put a QR code in your shopping, you know, your physical shopping experience? And they were trying to envision this world where the online and offline shopping experience, as well as all the analytics around it, were all going to be trackable and tied together. And, you know, businesses were going to be able to really you know, succeed and merchants were going to be able to make more sales because you were blending the digital and the physical. I'm not sure if we we got there. Maybe COVID really pushed us into this world of of yeah. having more of that. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting time and lots of lots of change when I when I was there. But I, I wasn't there for the node part. Yeah, and I, I suppose what 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 interests me is this is ten years ago, right? So. The APIs and the SDKs were handcrafted. There was no tooling. Mm -mm. No, and in 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 fact, it one. I think one of the biggest challenges that large companies face 
is when they release a set of APIs or some technology, and then the technology landscape shifts and what they've built isn't quite fit for purpose. So instead of trying to go back and rewrite what they've already got, they go ahead and create brand new APIs. And so when I was actually at PayPal, I really struggled to be an advocate for the technology because they had some existing tech that worked really well on the desktop, but didn't have a mobile optimized interface for the web. So if you pulled it up in your browser on your phone, you couldn't really do a checkout experience. Yet they had some new APIs that worked well with their native iOS SDK and that's really what they were pushing. But I was very much into, I don't know if you remember HTML5. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. At, but by like web standards, I was yes. I was very much like, how do we how do we help those developers who want to build on the native web the these checkout experiences? I think they eventually got there uh, through the acquisition of Braintree. But uh, that was the real challenge was uh they had a whole lot of different APIs and the feature set didn't have full coverage. And so you kind of struggle to help certain segments of developers at that time. Uh, okay. So this this raises another question. I mean after after PayPal, you you I mean you, you worked in places like um Zero, right? And yeah. Other places. I mean, th- these are these are large organizations. They have a whole bunch of Disparate APIs from different eras. They have legacy APIs, APIs focused on mobile versus web versus whatever. Presumably, with a lot of different teams. Um, so you've been there in the field. <laughs> How do you yeah. pull together? How do you keep? I mean, and from what you just said, PayPal didn't. <laughs> but in an ideal world, how would you keep that all consistent and coherent? Yeah. You know, I would say that consistency may not be your top priority. Okay, interesting. <laughs> and 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 the reason I say that is, uh, I'll give an example. Uh, when I was at Zero, their original API for their accounting um, software, because their their cloud accounting software was written, I think, in two thousand and nine. So it was kind of restful. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but one thing that really stood out was that they used this. There, there were Microsoft uh, C sharp uh, developers that built the platform, and mm-hmm. they used this really odd Microsoft date format, and it was stored in the database in such a way that when it came back from the API, developers had to kind of basically parse the date using some non-standard techniques, so it didn't fit your standard ISO date format. But then. As additional product teams built additional products like an accounting, I mean, a payroll, a payroll product, an expense product, they would then roll out APIs and they were doing it in a more modern way. And so if you tried to use the same SDK to read the date from the old legacy, you know, not legacy, but the old accounting API that was written in the past and the new APIs it would blow up because it it just couldn't handle both of them if you tried to do it with just a, a, a the same method you had to had to approach those things differently and it was raised like why don't we fix this date format you know issue 
And they said, you know, we, we talked about it and we said, well, we've got thousands and thousands of developers and customers who rely on this API. If we were to just break it, uh, then just for consistency's sake, that would just be a terrible experience for the developers. And and honestly, like between investing engineering resources and fixing that one problem versus other technical challenges, they they never addressed that one. And so we actually addressed it in our SDKs when we when we started building and automating how we built those. We put in the methods to help do that translation between that that sort of um, unusual date format that we had into a standard date format that could then be translated back and forth. And the developers never had to think about it because it was all handled uh, by the client libraries. And that was how we ended up solving that problem was not at the API level, but uh, at the SDK level. The SDK level, right. So that's that kind of shows you the power of SDKs, right? And why they're... Yeah, so, I mean, you have APIs. A lot of people also have SDKs. And from a software architecture point of view, should SDKs be preferable because they can solve, they can hide technical debt like that? Yeah, you know, um, ideally, we we were. I, I I like to think we're more enlightened in 2023, and that our engineers we have more established standards and practices. And I think something that's I've noticed at companies that I've been working at more recently, there's a lot more talk about API governance and styles style guides and standards that you know teams like uh I, I had a conversation with the team over at square and they actually have a committee that gets together uh, i believe it's like a steering committee to talk about their api standards across not just square but all um, all of the com- all of the different companies that they've uh, brought into the fold and how they want to approach building apis and so there's a lot more planning and conversation about how do we keep our APIs consistent. And I think API versioning is probably part of that. What's your versioning um, policy? What's your deprecation policy? Um, and so I think that's just a signal of the maturing of the API. So you don't have to cover up bad API design with SDKs. It's actually preferable to have you know some policies around how you're improving and expanding your API set so that they they are great no matter how a developer interacts with them. Now, that means that we're moving to a world where best practice is APIs are kind of like web RFCs where you, you write the spec and the documentation first and then you have implementations, perhaps more than one, and, and you do your versioning. But that means if that's if that if that is the case, um, I mean, there's a danger of writing the documentation first and then trying to implement. I've always found that <laughs> when you start implementing things, it feeds back into the documentation and you have to change, right? Because you couldn't think of everything. When it, whenever I've tried to write documentation first, uh, I've always had to go back and change it. So is it, do you have to do you have to set it up as a, as a feedback loop, or are there approaches you can take to doing it documentation first that keep you safe? Have you had experience of going documentation first? Yeah, I I, I think I when I was at Lob, we had a really well defined API specification, and if you if you want to get down to 
you know, the most basic way of telling, explaining to someone what an API, API definition or an API specification is, it's basically documentation. It's just machine readable. And from that specification, you can generate the more human readable, beautiful, like developer portals and things like that. And what I think what maybe what you're talking about is how do you create that feedback loop before you start writing code or changing your code? And what we were doing at Lob was we had a new API set we wanted to create. And we took an API specification first approach where we designed the endpoints. We thought about the use cases. We developed the models. We had it all defined in the spec. And then we we actually stood up and mocked those endpoints and put it in front of a few of our customers who were asking for these endpoints. And they were able to provide the product managers a lot of really valuable feedback about things that they expected in the responses or things that uh, they expected as far as functionality through the endpoints. And that really helped inform and result in a much better 1.0 version of that API because we had actually put it in front of real customers and gotten real feedback before writing a line of code. Is that the is that the only or best way? It, it sounds it worked pretty well for us. I'd love I'm curious what other people in the industry like how they're approaching this problem, but I I think it's a pretty good solution that worked well uh, when I saw it in action. There's a lot of pitfalls. Uh, there's a lot of pitfalls. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen things where you have architects defining APIs, and then it's just farmed out to a bunch of junior devs as a task list, mm. which usually goes horribly wrong. Um, I, I have a personal experience fairly recently of, of defining an API through uh, a, a kind of a, a swagger spec, and then uh, also being mostly involved in the implementation, and then having having to go back and say, "Oh, yeah, you know what." It's wrong. <laughs> now that we're yeah. it, we can see that it's wrong, but we skipped that interesting step where there's kind of a mocking version and you get yeah. feedback. So that's interesting. That's that's kind of a powerful technique. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, is there a place for saying we need to develop best practices around API development? I guess this fits into a bigger philosophical question. Um, and I do this with with my junior devs as I try to explain to them that there's different types of code. You know, there's there's business logic code, there's throwaway scripts, there's unit test code, and then when we're building libraries and SDKs, uh, the quality level is even higher, right? Because yeah. uh, these are going to be foundational elements of a system. Um, so you've you've got to be really strong in quality. So is so we have agile methods or whatever, even though a lot of people don't really like them so much anymore. But uh, do we, as a community, uh, as uh, need to start thinking about specifically the building of APIs and SDKs as a separate named development activity that has to have its own approach? Yeah, I think that. I think that we've learned a lot in the last decade, and I think we're going to continue to learn from each other. And there isn't, I, I worry when we we start to think that there's one way to do it, right? Um, 
I've been talking a lot about an API specification first, right? We had API first and and now I'm talking API spec first. Hmm. That's that's my that's my preference because I I kind of like the idea of having one document being this the single source of truth. But there's another school of thought, which is I want to have my specification generated from annotations within my code base. So as my developers are writing that new API endpoint, they can add some little bit of uh, you know description and add a little bit of you know annotation, and then I'm going to use a tool to generate my API specification from that. I think that that works pretty well if you're generating documentation, but I'm not sure. I've yet to see anybody like I, I haven't had firsthand experience of someone doing that and generating an API specification that is totally robust, right? It has all the examples. It has all the descriptions because those examples and descriptions are what make your documentation great and what make your SDKs really great. And I feel like if you're generating a specification from your from your code there is a trust that you have to have that your developers are going to write good descriptions are going to remember to put in all the annotations that you need and that the tools support all the annotations that you need to create a great spec so yeah i think we could get there uh but i don't have any firsthand experience with that so i can't tell you if that exists today or if it's something we we want to build in the future um because those are very different approaches but they get you to the same uh i hope it gets you to the same result which is a great experience for those developers consuming those apis which is the, your customer in a way and that's who i think we care most about is that they you know under, easily understand and have a good experience using your APIs and technology. Yeah, the annotation approach, of course, has the benefit that it's going to be, it's going to generate correct documentation by definition. But it kind of gives me PTSD thinking about trying to parse Javadoc <laughs> back in the day <laughs> where you, it generates massive amounts of supposed documentation that is completely useless. Yes. Um, yes. And I've definitely integrated with online services and SaaS vendors that have quite clearly done that and then dumped up the documentation site based on annotations, um, which is not, and, and usually it's not very useful. So, yeah. And doesn't that go back to the 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 sort of Donald Knuth literate programming idea? Was it him? This idea that you oh. you know programming is should be like a written essay, and then the code is sort of the annotation to the, the text. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not familiar with that, but I definitely have heard about uh, the concept. You know, clean code is self-documenting. And so you're naming your methods, you're naming your parameters, things that are understandable uh, and intuitive to the developers that come along after you and read your code. And and I think that's maybe, maybe what you're touching on. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that, um, so, okay, I, I, I genuinely don't know which, which approach is, it, it, is more fundamentally sound um, 
be interesting to see how that one plays out. The other thing that I've always found useful, especially with the SDKs, and which I feel is an essential part of the documentation for using an API, <laughs> is open source SDKs. Because I can't tell you the number of times that I've been trying to use a system and trying to integrate with it. Um, and just being able to read the source code of the SDK has helped me use the SDK. So I don't know where you, 100%. I don't know how you feel about that side of things. Cause some people don't open source their SDKs, which is makes life very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sometimes the debate about open sourcing an SDK comes from a place of a business concern that there's some something some competitive advantage they're giving away by open sourcing or they're giving away their secret sauce and to me i don't think that is a very strong argument it could be maybe made but i i don't think it's a very strong argument and you lose the huge benefit of community and transparency and trust that you can gain by open sourcing SDKs and other other projects as a company. I know that when I was at Zero, we actually generated a lot of our SDKs, and developers would show up who were much more skilled and knowledgeable about the language that we were generating in. Let's say, for example, PHP. I I know enough to be dangerous and and I could get the SDK out the door using the templates I had available for generating them but there were things that were missing uh methods that that would be really helpful and the developers couldn't make a pull request against the library because it was generated and mm. what they would do is they would file an issue maybe they would even do a, a small PR to kind of demonstrate what the change was they would want and then we could take that feedback and we could go and modify our templates and change things internally into our tooling system to implement that additional change to make it more idiomatic, which is uh, a way of saying we're following the customs of that developer community and we're writing code that is familiar to them so it, it's easier for them to use. And so that's one of the real advantages is that the community can help you make those SDKs better and more you know useful for for their implementations and how they're trying to utilize it so it's tough to have a team of of developers who are knowledgeable in six or seven languages and have them on staff full time it's really a challenge i think that's a big one i've i've really seen that with a lot of people that we talk to uh that is a that is a huge challenge because yeah. you, you, most companies fo have a focus on a particular platform yeah. And, and 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 I and I don't want to make that like the big make make a big pitch for API Matic, but I think that that's I think one of the advantages of exploring uh, if you're building SDKs and you're debating about should we build these in-house or should we go with a, a service or a company uh, that builds them. When you go to a company that all they do is, you know, night and day is think about SDKs in multiple languages and they have dedicated teams uh, to build those, then that takes that responsibility and minimizes that risk of, you know, 
having to have that team in place. And when someone leaves the team, they leave all the, they take all the knowledge with them. And so like, that's definitely one of the things that I would say is something to consider when you start building an SDK program or you're looking to, to revamp yours. This is where the idiomatic stuff comes in that you mentioned. Start. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. In, in, fa in fact, we just recently did several releases where we updated our code samples because we didn't think they were idiomatic enough. We didn't think we they were like done several years ago. And as the community standards evolve over time, then keeping those code samples in line with the expectations of the developer community is something that we uh, took a look at and said, hey, we need to we need to update how our code samples are coming out so they they're they're even more idiomatic. So that was something that we did at API-matic recently. Okay, let us wrap up with um, one final question. Um, you've been doing this stuff for a long time, right? Back when it was called developer evangelism, <laughs> and now it's developer yeah. advocacy and developer relations. Um, and how have you and and a lot of what you've done has been in a, in a leadership capacity. Uh, what are your thoughts on how developer relations should be run? Um, and by that, I mean, where does it fit into the organization? Are you, look, are you looking for specific sorts of people? Um, people are now going into it specifically as a career, as opposed to having been a developer for 10 years and then randomly ending up being an advocate. Uh, yes. <laughs> so if you're if you're if you're now setting up a developer relations activity in a company as a leader, what approach do you take? Yeah, a very open-ended question, right? But that is that <laughs> that is a huge. Uh, that's a big question. Yeah, and I could I can go in in lots of directions. So I think I'll just kind of touch on a few things. Definitely understanding the goals and the objectives of the leadership at the company that you're you're working at because devrel is you know it can get it can get a little bit i think off in in the weeds or off chasing things that are not necessary like are good right they're good for the community good for the developers but you it, at the end of the day, you're working for a company, for an organization that has goals. And so making sure that the work you're doing is supporting those goals, I think that's sort of number one. Uh, number two, recognizing that DevRel is a very cross-functional role. And so when, when you join an organization or you're in an existing one, building those relationships with the sales team, the support team, the engineering, the marketing, because the social media team, right? These are folks that are all contributing to that developer experience that you care so deeply about. And so having, you know, re relationships where you have some influence, but you're also gathering information from them about what are the what's on the roadmap, what is our priority, what kind of problems are developers facing. You can hear those from different channels within the company. And then that can help inform the work that you want to focus on as a DevRel team, because 
you're closely in touch. And the worst thing I think can happen is is when you end up in silos and the DevRel team is off, you know, planning events and running around doing things, but they're talking to developers, but they can't get any of the feedback from the community back to the engineering or the product teams. So when I was at Zero, we would have weekly meetings with the platform team to share what we were hearing. And we would often have to bring up the same issue multiple times over several months until it finally got on the roadmap. But you know, we understood that they Play. They had a huge uh, roadmap that they were trying to execute on, but we didn't. We didn't get discouraged, and it was a very positive relationship that we could continue to feed them uh, what we were hearing. So, where DevRel sits, right? If it's under marketing, if it's under engineering, you're going to get different perspectives uh, on what DevRel means, and I think that maybe one of the bigger sort of hurdles is helping educate people what uh, what good developer advocacy or dev developer relations is all about and uh trying to trying to help them you know see the value of investing in your developer community i think this cross-functional thing is pretty important uh, and that has come up a few times with, with other people um so maybe the three c's of developer relations right code community and content needs another c maybe it should be yeah. four c's cross-functional okay. Cross-functional. I like that. I'm, I might steal that. <laughs> oh, still, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, although it's kind of code community and cross-functional, it's kind of it needs a bit more. It needs a little bit of, of work. Uh, it becomes yeah. a good word. <laughs> Let me know, Sid. This has been um, really, really interesting. Thanks for going so deep on these questions. Um, so I feel, in a way, that you've opened up more questions. I have more questions than answers coming out of this discussion, but that's a good thing. Oh. Uh, I hope so. Good thing. Uh, lots to think about. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day. You too. Awesome. Awesome. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter, or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.